as those kids head to the back. I encourage you to turn with me to the book of Galatians. We are continuing our series there. It's been a fruitful series. Hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I know I've been not only helped by it, but it's been just a privilege to preach through this letter as we've walked as a church. It's been it's been helpful. It's been convicting. We're going to continue that this morning. We took a brief hiatus last week when Rick Gamash came and preached to us a very fitting sermon from the book of Mark talking about belief. And we even heard in worship this morning how Seth and others were affected during the week of that just sense of believing but needing help in our unbelief. Well, that fits in very well with the topics of Galatians. So we're going to turn there. Before we do, would you bow your heads with me? Let me pray first. Lord, one of the great gifts you give to your people when we gather in your name is that as we hold up your word and read from it and sing from it and preach from it, you promise that your spirit is there and that your spirit opens eyes to see and opens ears to hear and that when your word is faithfully preached, you move, that you stir sanctification, you stir godly affections. And you transform people into the image of your Son by the hearing and doing of the word preached. And so, Lord, we gather as your people here locally with the expectation that you, a faithful God, will be faithful to your promises, that the word will be active this morning, that it will cut deep, and that its wounds would be joyful. Lord, so would you do that? Incline our hearts to your testimonies this morning that we might leave here loving you with deeper affection and looking more like Jesus. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. And maybe a few folks in the room are like, oh, the Magna Carta. And some are thinking, I think I remember that term being talked about back in the day at school. Well, it's an apt description. The Magna Carta was a document that goes all the way back to 1215. So you're thinking 300 years before the Reformation. 300 years before Luther sat down with Galatians and saw Christian liberty dripping from its pages. That's how far back that document goes. And the purpose of that document was that it forced King John of England to sign something for the first time that limited the king's power. For the first time, a document was placed before the king that he had to come and sign promising that he would legally protect certain liberties for his subjects. Now, that kind of seems like a common thing to us today that people would have liberties and that those liberties would be protected by law. Before the signing of this document, that wasn't the case. The king's word was law, and so whatever the king said became law, and whatever the king wanted to say became law, and he could do with that whatever he wanted. And so if he wanted to infringe upon you or take something from you, his word allowed it to happen. The Magna Carta is the document that was set before the king by the nobles to say, no, there are certain things in certain places you can't go, certain things that are protected by your citizens, by your people. It's a significant thing. The king couldn't simply do as he pleased. Now, the significance of the Magna Carta stretches far beyond Britain. It's not just an English thing. It's considered one of the greatest constitutional documents ever devised. One of the greatest 
constitutional documents that's ever been written, and it marks the establishment of the freedom of the individual against the arbitrary authority of government. That's a good thing, and it sounds really American, doesn't it? Well, the reason that it does is because that was something very much in the background of the thinking of our founding fathers. So when the founding fathers of the United States sat down to write the Constitution, this document, the Magna Carta, which is likened to Galatians by many theologians, is one of the cornerstones of the political philosophy of our nation. This document formed the way that Jefferson and Washington and Madison and Hamilton and Adams were thinking as they wrote the Constitution to protect our liberties by law. So beginning with the Declaration of Independence and then the Revolutionary War, the great experiment for democracy and protected liberties finally became official with the ratification of the Constitution. Years of toil and battle and blood culminated in that document being ratified by the colonies for the first time codifying a government that's designed fundamentally to protect the civil liberties of its people. Not just where the Magna Carta said, King, you have to respect some liberties. The Constitution said the whole purpose of government is to protect those liberties. It's an amazing thing. The Magna Carta's descendants had come of age, you could say. Now, that's pretty massive stuff. And stuff we're all familiar with, right? Even the youngest kids know the significance of the Constitution and the Revolutionary War. Well, imagine the utter irrationality if weeks or months or even a year after the ratification of the Constitution and this newly established republic becoming official fresh off of having gained independence, the colonies decided, you know, it's been really cool what we've done this last decade, you know, fighting for this and these documents that have kind of shook up the world, but I, I think I'd like to go back to King George. We'd, we'd like to go back under his rule. You know, we want to pay taxes without representation. You know, it was really fun. It was kind of thrilling to throw a bunch of tea into the harbor it was fun to die for this idea, but you know, now that we've actually won it, now that we've actually established these liberties, why don't, why don't we just write King George a new letter? Hey, please, please forgive our former transgressions against you. We'd like to come back under your rule. Well, it'd be silliness. There's no way Jefferson and Washington and Madison would have stood for it. They knew the stakes that were at play. They knew how much was paid to get those liberties. Men died for them. Well, that's exactly how we see Paul reacting in this morning's text. Galatians is the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. And what he sees, and what we're going to look at this morning, is that after having experienced liberty in Christ, after experiencing the transition from slavery to sonship, being known as children of God, people were actually seeking to turn back to slavery. So look with me, Galatians 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. 
I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul has serious concerns. The Galatians appear to be giving up the liberties they've just tasted in Christ. They're turning from sonship back to slavery, and that begins to come in focus as we consider the passage. But as Paul calls that history to mind, he starts by talking about the nature of conversion. That's where Paul starts in this shocking discovery and calling the Galatians to realize do you understand how irrational you're being? Well, he does that by pointing their eyes to how they were converted. And this is what I want you to see this morning, our first point. Conversion hinges on knowledge. Conversion hinges on knowledge. This is where Paul begins. He says in verse 8, Formerly when you did not know God, when you didn't have knowledge of God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, being a Christian is about knowing God. You want to get a great book from the bookstore? There's a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. That's all about the basic beliefs of the Christian faith, just with the understanding, if you are going to be a Christian, you have to know who God is. And prior to being a Christian, you have no knowledge of God. In fact, Paul says, it's not just that you don't know who God is, you're enslaved to those who are not gods. You're enslaved to the demonic. But now you have knowledge of God, which is more accurately said that God, Paul says, has knowledge of you. Paul means you've been known by God. He's set his covenantal affections on you. He loves you. What's described here is a theology of conversion that's seen from both perspectives. It's seen from the human perspective, you know God, and from the divine perspective. You have been known by God. So let's look at those two things. First, the unconverted don't find themselves in a state of neutrality. If you're an unbeliever, it's not just that you're neutral. And this is totally contrary to the cultural arguments of modernity and the enlightenment that really fill our thinking these days. That's, that's the philosophy that's popular. That's the philosophy you hear on the radio and the music you hear on the, the songs on the radio, the, the things you see in the news. That's what you see, is that you're just, you're just a blank slate. That's not the case. Without God and prior saving knowledge of God, people aren't just blank slates. They're sinners. And they're not even just sinners. In their sin, they're enslaved to those things that are by nature not God's. It's not just that you're neutral. You're against God. And you're in captivity to those who are the treasonous generals against God, you could say. This theme of enslavement has a consistent pattern and topic in the last two chapters of this letter. Paul's been explaining the contours of redemptive history. Remember that? He's been walking us through the significance of the law and what that means for Gentiles to now be brought in and what's happening. So he's, he's telling us in broad brushstrokes the story of redemptive history, how God is saving a people for himself for the glory of his name. And one of the consistent themes has been you've been taken from bondage into sonship. We saw that a couple weeks ago in the first part of chapters 4. You once were in slavery, but now, through Christ, through the Son bearing the curse for you, you've been made children of God. Prior to salvation, all people serve false gods rather than the true and living God. Now, this slavery to counterfeit gods, it's really just idolatry. That's what's going on. That's what he's describing. 
But as 1 Thessalonians 1.9 describes, conversion is nothing less than the process by which you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. That's what happens in conversion. Humanly speaking, you turn from slavery to false gods, from idolatry and worship of false gods to the true and living God. So this pre-conversion idolatry is our default. We don't know God without knowledge of the true God because as Romans says, in our fallenness we suppress true knowledge. We naturally turn to false replacements. We devise pseudo-gods and false gods and counterfeit gods. And so self-worship and creature worship and man-made religion become the way that we live. Here's the thing. Everyone in this room is hardwired to worship. But lacking a sense of God, we worship any convenient replacement we can devise. So pre-conversion is that state of bondage. But conversion, Paul says, is essentially the dawning of knowledge of God. As verse 9 intimates, but now. So before you knew God, you were enslaved. But now you have come to know God. That's what happens when you're converted. In other words, you've been born again. In other words, now that you have faith, you now have personal and intimate knowledge of the true God. You now see Him to be your Creator. You see Him to be your King. And especially, you see Him to be your Father through the means of Christ's death and resurrection. Conversion is not merely praying a prayer. Conversion isn't just asking Jesus into your heart. Those are little cliched phrases that get thrown out a lot in in our evangelical world. And they truncate the true meaning and nature of conversion. Conversion is intrinsically the dawning of knowledge about who you are and who God is and what God has done in Christ to redeem and adopt you. But listen to the next phrase. That's just the human side. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, in other words, or better yet, to be known by God. This is the true nature of conversion clarified for us. Conversion, Paul is saying, is based on regeneration. Regeneration is an inward spiritual change of heart through the Holy Spirit that empowers the response of faith. Conversion happens because new birth through regeneration, this inner recreation of a fallen and enslaved nature, has occurred through the sovereign action of the Holy Spirit. And we see this when Jesus describes being born again in the Gospel of John. Remember that famous passage before John 3.16? He's talking about being born again. He's describing it. And he says in verses 5 to 8, the Spirit comes. And in order to be born again, you must be born not of flesh, but of the Spirit. And, and how does the Spirit end up where it ends up? Why does the Spirit do what it does? Because the Spirit wants to. The Spirit blows wherever it wills. The Spirit is sovereignly moving and working as the agent of regeneration. That's how Jesus describes being born again. So yes, in conversion, you've come to know God on the most relational of levels. But this is more accurately, accurately described as a result of your being known by God. That's really significant. Believers know God because of God's deeper and prior knowledge of us. To understand Paul's view, 
we have to grasp the meaning of the Hebrew verb know. Now, maybe you're thinking, the Hebrew verb? I thought we were in the New Testament. Isn't that Greek? Yes, it is. But when you look back at the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, they use all sorts of different verbs in the Greek to say no. But they're all translating the same Hebrew word, no. This, this Hebrew word no is foundational in an understanding of what it means to understand knowledge, and specifically what it means to understand God's knowledge of us. The word is packed with meaning. When this word is used of God knowing someone, it refers to His having chosen someone. If God knows you, then it means that God has set His electing affection upon you. There are tons of examples. Here are just a few. In Genesis 18.19, speaking of Abraham, for I have chosen him. In other words, I have chosen Abraham. Now, that's a significant figure in Galatians, right? We were talking about being blessed in Abraham by faith. Well, that verb that gets translated chosen is literally the verb know. You could literally translate that, for I have known him. In Amos 3T, so that's, that's the individual, right? That's the, the initial man of the covenant, Abraham. God knows him. God chooses him. Same idea. Well, what about in a group sense? In Amos 3.2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. In the context there, God is speaking to Israel saying, You, Israel, are the only people upon which I've set my covenant affection. You're the only people I've known. You're the only people that I've pursued. And then again on the individual level with the prophet Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That sense of God setting Jeremiah apart before his birth, of, of choosing him to be his prophet, is there in that passage. We know God because he knows us first. He foreknows us in the language of Romans, which is to say this. This is significant. The maker, sustainer, and king of all things has set his fatherly affection on us and has lovingly chosen to make us his own. There's no better news than that in all the world. Here's the problem. Like the Galatians, we often aren't satisfied with it. God, knowing God and being known by Him, that's the reality for the Galatians. And the next thing Paul describes is, with that being true, they begin to turn back to slavery. Keep reading in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Conversion hinges on knowledge, and that knowledge is meant to set us free in God. However, counterfeit gods seek actively to lure us back into slavery. And they seek that by hooking us in desires that still rebel against our knowledge of God. Counterfeit gods 
would lure us back to slavery. So after enjoying the fruit of conversion and the inheritance of becoming God's children, the Galatians are turning back from sonship to slavery. They're returning. That's the same word that's usually talked of. You turn in repentance. Paul's strategically using that here. Normally you turn in repentance from unbelief to faith in God. And here he says, Galatians, how is it that you're returning? You're, you're turning back to your former slavery, to paganism and false gods. You've tasted freedom and now you desire bondage. And in place of liberty, you are wandering willfully back into chains. It's astonishing and it's irrational. And sadly, it's all too familiar. These are the Galatians he's talking to. And the Galatians were Gentiles. Prior to their conversion, that's who they were. And so apparently, he says, they're not just going back into paganism, they're going back to Torah. They're going back to the law. Now that's a strange thing. How can he say that Gentiles, who didn't have the law before their conversion, are now returning to the law if they didn't have the law to begin with? Well, he can do that because he's comparing Torah as if it was going back to paganism. In verse 10 he says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, those are all references to the Jewish calendar, to Sabbath and holy days. We see that in the context of this passage. Paul has that view of the law in mind. That's a shocking statement. As a Jew, 25 years prior to this, Paul would have killed for those holy days and those Sabbaths. And now he likens that former life to paganism. They're keeping the Old Testament calendar for the purpose of salvation. And it's utter nonsense. Before their conversion, they're enslaved to counterfeit gods, and now Paul likens their attraction to Judaism as a return to paganism. Initially, it appears Paul's referring to different things in verses 8 and 10. You look at it, and it seems like verse 8, he's talking about false gods, demonic enslavement, idolatry. Now in verse 10, it seems like he's talking about the law. So what does he mean then in verse 9 when he says, you're turning from Christ and sonship back to slavery? Is it a turning to demonic slavery and idolatry? Or is this a return to the bondage of legalism? Which one is it? What's he trying to do textually there? It's both. The bondage of a return to legalism fits perfectly with Paul's concerns in chapter 3, that having begun in the Spirit, they're now seeking to continue in the flesh. They're now seeking to continue by their own obedience. So what we see in verses 8 to 10 is that to use the law in this way, to use the law and to make it into something like this, to use it for the purpose of salvation, is to make it indiscernible from the raw idolatry of paganism. That's a pretty shocking statement. Demonic Slavery is the equivalent to what happens if these Gentiles turn back to God's law. These Galatians, Gentiles before their conversions, Paul says if they seek merit, they seek salvation through the law, they're returning to the same bondage of false gods. Now, what's really unfortunate is that the Galatians are really paradigmatic of all believers. They're not unique in this, right? We can relate, relate to that hardwired sense, I still have to earn, I still have to work, I still have to do. So we see that, and in the example he gives us in the Galatians, we should see ourselves. 
We've all been freed from enslavement to the law, a law we can't possibly fulfill. And yet we just can't give it up, can we? It's sin disguised as virtue. But when it's put under the microscope, it's still just another false gospel. Look how Martin Luther describes it. He says, sin is really just mankind turned inward. Turned inward. Turned to himself as God. Turned inward to himself as the source of salvation. We've always operated this way. Now, the imagery of Exodus is sort of all over this text, right? We've been reading for a couple of weeks now about this idea of slavery and liberty and bondage. And it's pretty obvious. Paul has in the back of his mind here the imagery of the Exodus and of God's people being freed from bondage, 400 years of bondage in Egypt, and being led into the wilderness and led to the promised land. Now that's a foreshadowing of what happens in Christ. And the way that Christ releases us from bondage and enslavement and brings us to sonship. That's what's happening. It always amazed me when I was a little boy and you'd hear sermons on the Exodus or you'd read about the Exodus and family devotions. I I could never understand why in the world the Jews, the Israelites at Sinai would turn from the true God to a golden cow. It doesn't make any sense. Talk to the sharps if you want to understand how silly it is to worship a cow. It's irrational. How on earth are they doing it? You'd watch the Ten Commandments and just think, and that movie's on like, what are they doing? I mean, they've seen firsthand, not all that far back, the power of God to save them. They've seen just how ridiculous these false gods of Egypt were. Remember, it's basically a standoff between the true and living God and Pharaoh and his false gods. And plague after plague after plague and miracle after miracle after miracle shows irrefutably there is only one true God. And so now here they are at the bottom of this mountain. The true God's up on the top of the mountain. They can see his action going on. And they decide, we want to make a false God for ourselves. Why? How do you get to that place where you would think that way? Well, the reasons for ancient idolatry, from paganism to legalism, they're just different forms of idolatry, are the same today. So why would they do that? Why do we do it? I think there's many we could pull out. There's three that I want to look at this morning. First, idolatry is sensual. Here's my physical idol that I get to pray to. Here's a physical thing. He sits in my living room. He sits on my coffee table. I don't know if they had coffee tables back then. In our day, we may just worship the living room and the house itself. It was always amazing to see that and consider, how do they look at a statue and think, this is worthy of my worship? Well, our statues just look a little bit differently today. Idolatry is sensual. It's it's not faith in unseen spiritual activity. It's not faith in the faithfulness of an unseen God. That's not what idolatry is. It's, It's sensual and erotic and it's fleshly. In Galatia it says, cut your skin. And that's how you'll know you're saved. 
worship sex and get pleasure now. In the ancient world, there's idolatry that's, that's formed around that sort of erotic mentality. And in our world, we've just basically said that's not a way to please the gods. That activity is a god itself to be worshipped. Right? Second thing is, idolatry is selfish. It was in the ancient world. It is today. Idolatry is set up as a tit-for-tat system. You do this, you get that. You do stuff to get stuff. We might not sacrifice animals anymore, but the selfishness of our idols is still obvious. If I believe or pray, then I'm guaranteed prosperity and health and happiness. If I come to church and read my Bible, then God owes me something. Maybe He owes me salvation, but definitely blessings that work in my relationship because I'm doing the things he asks so I've got him on the hook at their core paganism and legalism are about man-made equations to get God to do what you desire him to do the former paganism creates counterfeit gods and worships them because they represent the things we desire above everything else wealth influence health food etc become our gods because it's what we've decided a God should be. The latter acknowledges the true God. Legalism says that that's the true God and acknowledges Him in principle and then treats God like a divine piggy bank of blessings. If I'm obedient enough, if I put in my obedience, I get to take out my withdrawal of blessing. If I'm obedient, the divine piggy bank has to be good to me. If I perform... He has to protect. If I pull this lever, if I push this buttons, then the sovereign king of kings has to be my butler. That's how idolatry operates in our modern minds. And finally, idolatry is expedient. It's easy. It's built on convenience. In the ancient world, it's all this outward activity that makes a pathway to appeasing God easy and straightforward. You give this sacrifice and the gods will give you rain. You give this sacrifice and the gods will protect you from your enemies. Do these things and God will do this. It's very clear. It's very easy. This is the way you do it. It's very easily set out. This sacrifice for this sin, this offering for this blessing, or dressed up under the law, this moral activity for this degree of God's favor. In our modern world, it looks like this. I want discipleship to be convenient. So active membership in a church, that's not important. I can just watch TV and see a preacher. It's, it's convenient, but it's still discipleship, right? I don't have to go to church. I can just listen to someone on the radio. I don't have to sing, worship, and be with the people of God gathered. I can just sing along to Caleb on my radio. This discipleship turned convenience is an evidence of our idolatry. Maybe I do decide that going to church is important, but idolatry can still play a role in how I decide the church I'll go to. You know, I think it's important to go to church, but there has to be convenience in the church I decide to go to. In other words, it's got to be the church with the right goodies. It's our idolatry of consumption. 
I'm going to make church God's vending machine. I like this church's music style, so I go there. And then we have kids, and I decide, well, that church has a really awesome children's ministry, so we're going to go there. This church has killer small groups, and that's what I really want, so we're going to go there. This church has a new building. It's a big building, bigger than our old building, so we're going to go there. This church has a smaller building. It has no building, so it's more organic. I'm going to go there. This church has a new pastor. This church has a cool pastor. This church has an older pastor. This one has a new, young, relevant, hip pastor. This church has relevant worship that makes sense to me. This church has traditional worship. This church has lots of people my age. This church has not many people that age. This church has lots of candles and rituals. It feels old. And the list goes on and on and on. And it's all examples of the idolatry of consumption in our culture. All these consumer-driven manifestations of church choice are just expressions of the convenience of idolatry at work in our hearts. None of those things is necessarily bad. A new pastor, a young pastor, I hope that's not a bad thing, right? Good worship ministry, that's not a bad thing. Effective children's ministry, not a bad thing. But when those things get in the driver's seat of our hearts, it turns ugly. Here's one of the expedient ones that hit me this morning. Idolatry is expedient, which means idolatry is about ease and convenience. I don't know, a big idol hit me? Leisure. Historically, we work less today and live longer than we ever have in the past. You look back historically, people start work later in life. I mean, it used to be you were nine years old, you were working. Not just a couple chores, you were working. You were 12, you were maybe in a factory somewhere. Now, child labor laws are a good thing. Let's be clear about that. We, we don't want 12-year-olds in coal mines, right? We don't want them losing fingers in industrial plants. But people start work later. They work a shorter work week. It was common even a hundred years ago, but certainly several hundred years ago, that your work week was dawn till dusk. I mean, you worked all day. You got home, you ate, now it's dark, and you go to sleep. Unless you had a lot of money and you could afford a lot of candles, when the lights went out, you slept, and when the sun rose, you got up and worked again. The work week was long. The Sabbath was your only day off, and you died young. Start working young, work a lot, die young. Today, Start work a little bit later, have a shorter work day, have a shorter work week, and then retire and live a lot longer. And I'm sitting there yesterday, and I got a great gift of going to a NASCAR race, which was a cultural experience in and of itself. And so yesterday afternoon, I'm sitting there watching the NASCAR truck series with some guys from church. Normally, Saturdays are a day devoted to sermon prep. So... By carving out Saturday afternoon, I was committing myself that I was going to have to work until late into the evening Saturday night. And I was grumbling. The other guys were talking about going out to Buffalo Wild Wings later that night and watching a sporting event. And in my heart, I grumbled. I should have that kind of leisure. Why do I have to do this? 
Why can't I have Saturdays off every week? I was still grumbling this morning. Hannah got up, and I'm putting the finishing touches on the sermon, and I said, it's mornings like this when it's not fun to be a pastor. And I'm sitting there worshiping this morning, and it just hit me. In a sermon on idolatry, it was the idol of leisure. I wanted ease. Now, there's a lot of good things that happen with regulations about work weeks. Our move from an agrarian to an industrial to a a lacking industrial culture has carved out time in our weeks, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Unless our heart comes and stamps all that extra time and says, Leisure! Protect it! Defend it! This is my time! I just was sitting there convicted. Lord, this was a time to give to you and to serve you. But because of the idolatry of my heart, it was seen through this lens of a burden. G.K. Beale nails it in the title of his book, We Become What We Worship. You become what you worship. You worship leisure, you're probably going to become pretty lazy. And you're going to have a lot of time off, and you're going to have a boat. Not that boats are bad, but you're going to spend maybe a little more time in your boat that you could be spending with your family or serving or doing other things. You worship money, your life will become oriented around money and greed. And you will look greedy. You worship the law, and you will become legalistic. It's a truth. No matter what the form of idolatry, through legalism or paganism, there's no life to be found there. The sad truth we see in this text is that all of us, or many of us, are still recovering Pharisees. And those of us who aren't recovering Pharisees are just recovering pagan idolaters. Even after conversion, the lure of idolatry and legalism is huge. Even after tasting grace, we want to walk back to the old equation. What God will do for me depends on what I do for God. I tithe and fast and pray and read my Bible and go to church because I'm still unconvinced that grace is free. If the devil can't get you to disobey God, he'll convince you to obey from the wrong motives. Idolatry is at the heart of each temptation. But it's also, going back to the beginning a lack of knowledge. This is the concluding thought this morning. Conversion hinges on knowledge. Counterfeit gods seek to lure you back into slavery by clouding that knowledge that you have, which means knowing and being known by God is what ultimately liberates us. That's what Paul is saying. That's what's shocking is these people know God. They've been known by God. How is it they're returning to slavery? That should liberate them, and it should liberate us. That's a stunner for Paul. Their digression back into bondage hasn't even questioning his own labor for their salvation. But was it in vain that I worked among you? Was your conversion not legitimate? How else to describe that, that you're so willingly walking back into bondage after you've tasted liberty in Christ? The reason we turn back not just the Galatians, but us, your pastor on Saturday night and Sunday morning, idolizing leisure. The reason we turn back is because I think deep down we mistrust what we know about God. 
and we are painfully aware of what we know about ourselves. We mistrust what we know about God, and we can't escape what we know deep down about ourselves. Is God really as merciful and as loving as He seems? Is the gospel really that free? Or, if He really knew me, wouldn't He have more demands? If He really knew how bad my past was, wouldn't He have higher expectations of what I have to do now to get on His good side? Walking with the true and living God by faith in what is unseen requires a constant posture of trust. It's not as sensual as idolatry is. You've got to trust. Hebrews 11 is all about these men, these characters of the Old Testament, having faith in what is unseen, entrusting themselves to a better inheritance, that one day their faith will become sight. And there's an hourly need to believe and cry out for grace and rely on the power that doesn't spring from within us. As Rick said, to tell God, I believe, help my unbelief. Conversely, the lure of the law and false gods and idolatry are remarkably similar despite all their diversity. It requires walking by sight and sense and touch and smell. That's what the falsehoods require. Just walk by what you can feel and taste and see. It's a posture of turning to self. Remember Luther saying sin as man turned inward? It's a posture of turning to self and personal wants and internal provision. The power to succeed and perform and ensure blessing can be tailored to tangible equations that our flesh and the world and the devil can eagerly customize to our lifestyle, our budget, our schedule, and our egos. But while the latter appears easy, idolatry and legalism, while those things are the inclination of our flesh, Paul says it's death. It's a road back to slavery and bondage. It requires performance that in truth we can never deliver. It requires strength that we can't consistently or sufficiently supply. And it promises us life in things that are not life. Because it seduces us with things that are not God. No matter how hard we may work to make them look godly, they simply aren't. They're knockoffs. Only the gospel provides liberty. And only the gospel's provision liberates anything else. Anything else enslaves us. Jesus grants life where our sinful flesh can only uncover death in the form of counterfeit gods. We know in our bones, don't we? We know in our bones that we don't measure up. And if we don't measure up, the judge will punish us. Paul talks about it in Romans. Even those who don't have the law know that their conscience bears witness against them. They're not doing what they ought to do. And that crushing weight of judgment tends to push us back into either the slavery of self-salvation. I know I don't measure up, so I've got to do things to prove I measure up. Or, creating lesser gods with easier judgments. I can't measure up to the true God, so let's make a false God. That's more in line with the way I think I can measure up. We people please for the same reason we perform for God. We worry that if people really knew us, they wouldn't love us. 
So we put on a show and jump through hoops, hoops that we think will lead a person or God to love us more. Here's the miracle of conversion. We now know God accurately. We no longer have to devise bogus substitutes. But the miracle, like Paul said, is really to be known by God. The reality that God's knowledge of us precedes our knowledge of Him is our only hope. He knew every sin. He knew and knows every shortcoming. He knew every weakness. He knew every scar that you bear. He knew our worst thoughts. He knew our most secret desires. Desires we would never even confess to our closest friend or our spouse. He knew them. And knowing all that, the maker and sustainer and king of all things has set his fatherly affection on us and lovingly chosen to make us his own. The only word for that is grace. There's nothing the Father didn't know. And now He has caused us to be born again to a living hope so that we might also know Him. And specifically that we might know Jesus, being known by God and loved anyway. Knowing Jesus, the evidence of how impartial and committed God's love was. This is what breaks the power of idolatry and performance. The bondage of bogus gods and performance-based salvation is broken by the grace of God in the face of Jesus. God knows how messed up we are. He knows it. He knows it better than you or I know it. But the liberty of the gospel is that Jesus brings grace with no strings attached. That's what salvation is. That's what Him knowing you, being known by God is. He knows you and has known you before time began. He knew you. He knew you. And chose to love you anyway. He took your judgment and curse and bondage upon his back so that you would know forgiveness and blessing and freedom. We've been known by the Father, and so we know the Son and can put to death the slavery of salvation by performance. The need to create lesser gods to console our guilty consciences is obliterated by the far better news that God has shown us and loved us and saved us through his Son. It does defy our logic. It seems irrational. It sounds too good to be true. Which is why the Father, in all His graciousness, has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. As Paul will say in the next chapter, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Would you bow your heads?